Welcome to Season 2 of the Kraken Busters, where we are exploring the Great Sea Monster Crisis of 1987. This is Episode 206, Setup. I'm Keith Pilly. Let's uh, kick this one off with uh, some listener feedback again. Mark from Chattanooga asks, Wait a minute, what is all this? This isn't how I remember 1987 at all. What the hell? And first off, well, Mark, uh, thanks for writing, although I'd appreciate it if you kept a more civil tone. I mean, come on, we're all friends here. Anyway, listen, man, I said up front that the stuff that made the TV that we all remember was just the tip of the iceberg. We're looking at the bottom of the iceberg now. There were a couple of weeks of slow boil before the big stuff that made the TV news happened. I can absolutely promise you this. In a week or two, all hell is going to break loose on this show. And it won't be long before you're nodding and saying, Oh! Oh, that's why CNN had all those boats and all that scary shit on all the time. So yeah, your horses. Hold them. Um, If anyone else has a question or a comment uh, and wants to be nice or at least neutral about it, uh, please let me know. So okay, last week was a lot of consultation. As Robert Kennedy talked to some allies, leaned on Margaret Thatcher, and came away from it all, thinking that the best thing to do here was to stage an elaborate hoax blaming the Soviets for the fact that the North Atlantic was suddenly impassable. This week, it's a lot of work setting up an international hoax. But first, a little more Cold War background. About that. So yeah, there's another Cold War-related structure that I wanted to talk about. Probably should have talked about it sooner, but hey, in the podcasting game, you do the fast-moving story stuff first, and all the explanations later. Anyway, I mentioned in passing a few episodes ago that as the U.S. and USSR jockeyed for some slight advantage over the other, always trying to avoid direct military confrontation out of mutual fear that it would escalate to nuclear war, the two countries' intelligence agencies engaged in a lot of the actual conflict. These agencies being mostly the CIA, for Central Intelligence Agency on the American side, and the KGB, which is a transliteration for the Russian acronym for Committee for State Security on the Soviet side. And I say mostly here because both sides did have additional agencies that got involved, some military agencies, for instance, and then you know weird outliers like Detachment 69 and their Russian counterparts. And God, I'm going to murder this. Um, the Russian counterparts, the Oktyabrskaya Gvardia, something like that. Uh, we're, we're needlessly out in the weeds here. CIA, KGB, that gets you 90% of the way there. Anyway. It's probably time to stop a second and talk about what this jockeying between intelligence agencies actually looked like, even if we've actually talked about it in passing a little bit. It's a thing that's going to pop up here and there in the main narrative, and it's one of the dynamics shaping the whole thing. So let's get a quick handle on it. Now, outside of the occasional face-offs between the fearless freaks and the Oktyabrskaya Gvardia, God damn it. Uh, the main event interactions between the major intelligence agencies happened all over the world and varied slightly depending on the political polarity of the given city or country. In truly neutral countries, which might be somewhere minor like, say, Uruguay, or somewhere major like France, 
You'd have both agencies set up, with stations embedded in the American and Soviet embassies in that country, with the spies working under diplomatic cover. So, like, the head of the KGB station in Paris might officially be the cultural attaché at the embassy, or something like that. Also, a lot of other agents working without official cover, but a lot fewer of those because if they get caught, they're absolutely boned. So, in these situations, you'd have agencies working pretty hard to recruit people within the host country's government and other social structures with the end goal of trying to nudge the host country out of neutrality and into an open alliance. But at the same time, knowing that the adversarial agency was up to the same thing, there'd also be a lot of time spent sort of playing defense. So, like, a big chunk of the CIA station in Paris's time would be spent keeping an eye on what the KGB was up to there and trying to thwart their recruitment efforts, and then also, and God does this get exhausting if you think about it, being aware that the KGB was keeping an eye on them and trying to evade that scrutiny, and honestly, it just, it usually turns into a bunch of wasted circular motion. As you move outwards in political polarity, so into countries that are more aligned with one of the big powers, the intelligence struggle would kind of shift with the polarity. So like in Berlin, you wouldn't have the CIA trying to shift the position of the German Democratic Republic's government, because that's just not going to happen. So instead, it would be more of a case of trying to infiltrate their systems and get information, and the KGB sort of playing defense on this. And, uh, you know, if you want, you can flip the polarity and get the rough situation in, like, London. Um, and like I said, for the side playing offense, this would mean trying to find people within the government or other systems who'd be willing to trade information for money, or give information because they had a grudge with the system, or, and this was always popular, uh, to find people in the government with useful information who were susceptible to blackmail, which would then give the agency a kind of control over them. Uh, sometimes this jockeying also extended to full-on violence, but usually not. And then... The CIA and KGB kept robust operations active in each other's capitals, and here's where things got both roughest and most tightly controlled. If out-and-out violence was rare in Allied capitals, it was pretty much unheard of in each other's cities. There's that whole nuclear escalation thing again. But short of violence, in Washington and Moscow, and of course the other major cities in each country, the KGB and CIA worked feverishly to recruit agents within the enemy government, get information, and generally do whatever they could to thwart the actions of the opposed government. And the other side played defense. In Moscow, it was a directorate of the KGB that handled this as well. In Washington, since the CIA's charter forbade it from operating within the U.S., this counterintelligence work was handled by the FBI. Although the CIA got pretty good at finding loopholes in that charter, and they were pretty active in Washington too, if we're being honest. So, why go through all this? Again, it's important that you keep in mind that all of this activity is just seething around the world, as everything else I've talked about has been happening. Remember, after all, that it was a rash of intelligence reports that kicked all of this off a few episodes back. But more than that, as the past few rounds of meetings have happened in Washington, it's important to remember that the D.C. KGB station has had people seated throughout the American government apparatus, noting the frantic meetings and movements of important personages, and reporting all of it back to the center in Moscow, all while working feverishly to find out what was being discussed in those meetings. And believe me, this is going to get important soon. And okay, enough of that, let's pick back up with the direct narrative. So, remember... After last episode's series of meetings between ADP leaders and then American intelligence community leaders, an action plan had been developed that, to further the cover story that the North Atlantic was now under quarantine because of a nuclear accident on a Soviet naval vessel, 
some American vessels were going to need to head back into the Sea Monster Exclusion Zone and plant some evidence. And since this was a classic Detachment 69 mission, and Javier Delgado was just sitting out in the North Atlantic on board the Flag Island with a full, navally-oriented D-69 team, well, you know, things got pretty clear here. Of course, a few things needed to happen upstream of all this. For one thing, that evidence that was going to be planted needed to be produced and then gotten out to Delgado. As I mentioned in passing, this had started on the evening of May 7th, and actually didn't take too long to get done. At that point in history, because of a few defections that had happened and then been kept quiet, there were actually a couple of Soviet naval vessels in storage at a classified graving dock in Virginia, including at least one nuclear vessel, already deep in the process of being taken apart and studied. It wasn't a big deal for a team from the CIA's technical services to buzz over and grab some parts, making sure to select ones that would float. As far as that radioactivity, well, let's just say it's been made clear to me off the record that getting access to radioactive material was no problem whatsoever for CIA's technical services, with the only trouble there being the need to make sure that the isotopes involved matched what was known about Soviet naval reactors. Which, fortunately, there was one sitting right there at that graving dock, and hey. You know, here's the thing about the CIA. When they fuck up, they fuck up spectacularly but uh, they can also be very good at a lot of things. So, by noon of May 8th, the CIA had a large package of buoyant ship parts, along with a couple of kegs of radioactive dust, ready for shipment to the North Atlantic. To keep the operation as secure as possible, because remember, like I was saying earlier, the KGB had a pretty extensive presence in and around Washington, and also around and probably on every major naval base, so sneaking around here was absolutely necessary. It was widely agreed that the transshipment wouldn't happen through the regular Navy. Fortunately, Detachment 69's mandate to have specialists in every military function included logistics, and the nature of their work meant coordinating with the CIA was just old hat for the freaks. So, on the afternoon of May 8th, a couple of D-69 pilots flew the materials from Langley to a small airport on the southern tip of Greenland, where it was then picked up by the heavy-lift D-69 helicopter that had already been operating off of the Flag Island. While all of this was going on, General Abernathy had also been briefing Delgado on the mission by secure videocom. And, as Delgado's trepidation about taking the Flag Island back into the Sea Monster Exclusion Zone alone mounted, Task Force Commander Admiral Matt Yellen was brought into the loop to command a detachment of ships that were ostensibly going to be patrolling the Exclusion Zone, but would really be escorting the Flag Island as she carried out her mission. Delgado didn't love the mission, and believe me, we are going to be hearing more about that next week. But he was used to it. And he was more than ready to go by the time his teammate Hickok landed on the ship with all of the quote-unquote evidence. And Admiral Yellen, for his part, was excited to get moving and do something, because just steaming in circles next to an active sea monster zone was making him acutely nervous. The only thing that remained was for the actual planting of the story itself. Carefully crafted quote-unquote leaks had started radiating from Langley pretty much immediately after the initial meeting, followed by some staged tense questions and terse no-comment reply tableaus between friendly journalists and key national security personnel. And then, on the morning of May 9th, as Yellen and Delgado were pulling their task force together and separating from the larger group of Navy ships massing off of Greenland, National Security Advisor Juliana Burke announced an abruptly scheduled press conference of her own. Standing at a podium in the White House, Burke announced that, quote, 
Two days ago, American intelligence assets detected what appeared to be a catastrophic radioactive event in the North Atlantic Ocean, approximately 1,500 miles northeast of the Grand Banks. Subsequently, agencies of the U.S. government have monitored a plume of radioactivity expanding outward. Out of an abundance of caution, the U.S. Navy has coordinated with the navies of several friendly nations to enforce a quarantine of a large area of the North Atlantic, both to keep unprepared vessels out of the fallout zone and to maximize the possibility that American naval assets would be able to determine precisely what had occurred in the exclusion zone and mitigate the problems and effect any rescues necessary. This quarantine was undertaken quietly at first, to minimize public concern, and in all candor, I must say that I am only announcing it now because I have become aware that rumors are afoot about what is happening in the North Atlantic, and I want to set the record straight about those rumors. One thing I wish to say unequivocally, although a radioactive event has taken place, there has been no indication whatsoever of a nuclear detonation. Our very firm estimate of the situation is that this is the result of a maritime accident involving a vessel with nuclear propulsion. And while this is, of course, very concerning, it is a very different matter from one involving nuclear weapons. A primary goal in the coming days will be to determine more details of the nature of this maritime incident. In the meantime, I want to be clear. A naval quarantine line is being established east of the Labrador Sea with the boundaries expressed on the map behind me. And although it is largely in international waters, it will be patrolled and enforced by ships from American and friendly navies. This quarantine is in effect until it is declared over by the president. End quote. Burke then answered some questions from reporters, pretending to be hobbled in her ability to answer by classification concerns. She made a big production of implying that it was a Soviet ship that had had the nuclear accident, saying things like, well, I can say with certainty that it was not a U.S. flag vessel that suffered the accident, and there are only a few other nations that use nuclear propulsion, wink. The, uh, the message was gotten across. The Soviet government immediately put out a terse statement denying any accident and condemning the quarantine, but this was shrugged off internationally. Of course they'd say that. To this extent, the cover-up had been set up beautifully. In the meantime, in the North Atlantic, Yellen's task force was bringing Delgado's team back into the heart of the monster zone. And that is it for this week. Join me next week as the Flag Island goes in. Um, as always, I would super appreciate it if you would either rate the show or leave a review or just you know tell a couple people in your life about it. Um, you know, any listenership is appreciated, and uh, thanks, and be well. Bye.
Cause the bitches love